Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Indeed, today is the day. It is Tuesday, the 5th of November, 2019. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so uh, I wanted to just share this little reflection with you um, about what you're reading today, because what you're reading can also be a who are you reading. And as you are reading people, um, what are you getting? Like, right? So this, this actually grows out of my mom saying to me when I was a kid, like on my way out the door, hey, you know... <laughs> Take note of the fact you may be the only Bible somebody else reads today. Now, that that's, uh, might be more of a uh, more of a burden than you want to place on your child as they march out the door, but it's convicting. I will tell you that. Um, so this uh, this particular man that I met, I don't know his name. Um, I will describe him as elderly, and he wasn't exactly looking at the newspaper that he was holding in his hands. We were in a hotel lobby in New York City. Um, I was waiting on, uh, you know, a, an Uber, a Lyft, a, a cab of some kind. Um, and so I I was watching him as he was not looking at the paper, but kind of over it. And so I couldn't help myself. Um, I sat down in the chair that was nearest to the couch where he was sitting. Um, and he averted my his eyes in my direction just long enough for me to have that window of opportunity that's necessary for me, you know, to feel like I can speak to someone. So I said, what are you reading? And without hesitating, he answered, people. I'm reading people. And um, I smiled because, uh, you know, it's not like he's reading People magazine, right? He's reading people. And so I said, well, what are you learning as you're reading people this morning? And he smiled and he put his paper down. And he told me a story of the family that he had watched leave who were clearly running late to catch an overseas flight. There was lots of conversation that he described that he couldn't understand um, he couldn't understand the language they were speaking. He says, but I understand, understood perfectly well what was going on. You don't have to hear people to be able to understand them. We've all been there, right? Running late, feeling out of control, desperate for time to slow down so we can catch up. Um, and I agreed. Um, and I, I nodded in agreement, but I didn't interrupt because I, I just felt like I was just supposed to listen to him. He was going to tell me what he was learning by reading people. I was going to listen. So uh, he then told me another story of some people he'd read that morning. Uh, he, he described a couple um, who were in a, a silent feud. Here's, here's basically what he said. You could feel the heat and the anger across the lobby. You could feel it when they stepped out of the elevator. You could feel it between them. Other people moved physically out of their path, and the lobby got really quiet until they were out of the door. And then, as if in summary, he added, I'm reading people. And, and before um, he could raise his paper shield and shut me out, I ask one question, why? And so um, he said, you know, first, there's, for, they're endlessly fascinating. And then he said, second, because people want to be read. People want to be seen. People want to be heard and understood. They want to know they matter. I'm reading people to grant them their dignity. I acknowledge to God the individuals that he has made as I read them. That one and that one and that one. And, and as he was saying that, he was like, 
uh, his eyes were landing on different people in the lobby. And as he as he his eyes landed on this one gentleman, he says that one right there who thinks he's really something and that one right there um, slipping in and out of the shadows along the edge of the room. You see that one. I'm reading him right now. And as I'm reading him, I'm praying for him because he matters. I don't know his name. I don't know where he's going. I don't even know where he's from, but I can read him. And in the moment that I read him, I simply thank God for him and pray for him. I I was I, I got to tell you, I was stunned. And so I just, I mean, I'm slack-jawed. It's unusual for me to be in the presence of somebody who is um, witnessing in such a way that I have no idea how you could ever argue with this man's testimony of what he is doing in ministry in the lobby of a hotel. Um, And so I said, what are you doing here? Because I felt like, you know, this is just not your average person sitting in a hotel lobby. And he said, well... I'm doing here what I'm doing wherever I am. I'm looking for ways to use the time that God has given me. I'm old. I can't walk with my grandchildren as they explore the city today. And no one thinks I can do the things that I used to do, for which I once got paid a lot of money. But that doesn't stop me from doing what I can right here and right now to honor God. So I'm reading people, and as I'm reading them, I'm praying for them. That's what I'm doing here. And then he said, what are you doing here? And I don't know if maybe it was God's grace that at that point my ride arrived um, and I smiled and I uh, and I left his presence. But I will tell you that I was blessed. So here's my question to you. Who are you reading today? And as you're reading those people, how are you praying for them? Let's remember that people matter. People matter because they are made in the image of God. They have an inherent dignity and we owe it to them not only to see them and hear them um, and read them, but pray for them as fellow image bearers of the living God. And then let me ask you this. What are you doing here? Next up, Justin Gibney from the AND campaign. Justin Gibney is back from the AND campaign. Uh, you can find him online. You can find him on Twitter at the AND campaign at Justin Gibney. Um, Justin, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Well, I'm well. I'm well. First of all, let's um, let's talk about what you guys are doing on Thursday, November the 14th, um, because I think that this is really cool. Talk talk about the Faith and Politics Rally. Yeah. So as you know, Carmen, we uh, issued or uh, released a statement, uh, a 2020 presidential election statement a few weeks back. Um, we are having like an e-rally, what we're calling it, um, in Chicago. Uh, we'll be broadcast from Chicago at Progressive Baptist Church uh, to really talk about uh, parts of the statement and how Christians should be looking at this 2020 race from a biblical point of view. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the the statement, because I know I want to get to a conversation about, you know, the religion problem that we have in both parties. But I don't mm-hmm. want to miss the opportunity to sort of lay the what I describe as like hope-filled groundwork, which is what I feel like you guys are doing. Um, you're laying some very hope-filled groundwork for the election, which takes place, uh, you know, a year from today. Um, so talk about uh, talk about the 2020 uh, presidential election statement and where people can find it. Sure. Uh, so the first thing is it's really um – kind of the impetus for for it was how we came out of the 2016 election. I think folks on both sides can say the church didn't come out of that election uh, in the way that we should have. I don't think um, in, in general that we glorify God the way we should have. So what we were trying to do with this 2020 statement is create a framework, not tell you who to vote, vote for or anything like that, 
but create a framework for Christians to work within to kind of figure out how to do 2020 better than we did 2016, uh, not just based off, you know, um, the final results, but how we interacted with each other is really what we were getting at and how we interacted with the political space. And so we want Christians to be more faithful in that regard on both sides of, of the aisle. Uh, and so, you know, we talked about some issues that we really care about. We talked about poverty. Uh, we talked about abortion. We talked about religious freedom, um, health care, uh, and so on to give, again, to give Christians a framework by which to view the political landscape today. And and people can find it um, in lots of places, actually. But where are we sending them? Are we sending them to andcampaign.org backslash 2020? Is that a That's backslash it. or a slash? That is, I think, a backslash. I think it's a backslash. (laughs) I'm bad at that, too. Right. Okay. I think when the bottom of the slash points to the left, it's a backslash. So we're going to call it a backslash. So andcampaign.org backslash 2020 to find the um, presidential election statement. We really want people to read it and engage it. Again, it's not designed um, to be partisan in the sense of uh, of in any way, shape, or form um, indicating – which party you might vote with. It's about our convictions as Christians, about how we are going to go about our discourse in this 2020 cycle, um, and the the places where we're going to say, you know what, here I stand, regardless of whether or not it's a it's a plank that my party shares. Um, so it's a it's an invitation, and then you can also join in the e rally on November the 14th if that's something um, that you're interested in doing as well. Okay, Justin, let's talk about both parties having a uh, a religion or religious problem. We've got headlines related both to the Democrats having a religious problem and certainly headlines related to Republicans as well. So enter into this fray wherever uh, wherever you choose. Yeah, I'll start with the Democrats. I think the Democrats' religious problem stems from the fact that they have a donor class um, that just really doesn't want to engage religion. Uh, that is very secular, uh, that is that is elite, and that would, in a lot of cases, and these are generalizations, obviously, but in a lot of cases would not would rather not have to deal with with kind of the the religious principles and and some of the things that Christians and others bring to the table. And you can see that reflected in almost all of the presidential candidates. Uh, you'll you'll you know you'll hear you'll hear the trappings of faith and people will talk about faith, but when you get to the substance, when you get to the principles and how those principles affect policy, you start to see that uh, it's really just a secular progressive uh, point of view, and there's not much room for religion in there, uh, even though there are a lot of you know Bible believing uh, people who who are in, who are in that party. Uh, when you talk about what's going on in the Republican Party, I think you see a representation of uh, of Christianity and religion. But a lot of people, and from my point of view, you would say it's a, a misrepresentation in some ways. It's you know you see people who are talking a lot about Christian self-interest, but not a whole lot about loving our neighbors and what that looks like. Um, how how can we care for uh, the immigrant pop- population? How we can how can we care for those who have kind of been pushed to the margins of society? You don't see that a lot. So f- a lot of folks with the end campaign, we kind of see on the left there's a, a lack of representation. On the right, sometimes a misrepresentation based on the voices that you normally. Here, So that's not to say that in both parties there aren't faithful Christians. I believe that there are, and I know that there are. But based on the representation that you see, uh, whether you're watching the Sunday shows or whatever, you don't see um, uh, the the type of framework that I think the Ann campaign brings to the uh, public square. So um, I found it curious. I do not think of uh, the Ann campaign as uh, 
I mean, I, I'm sure there are people who think of it as right or people who think of it as left. I actually, because I know people involved from the right and the left, I don't think of it as either right or left. I think of it as, uh, you know, seeking to be authentically or distinctively Christian in the midst of uh, pretty partisan, <laughs> very, very partisan times. However, right. it's interesting to me to see you guys characterized or the Ann campaign characterized um, by journalists as sometimes right and sometimes left. It, I just I'm I'm interested to know um, how when the Ann campaign is characterized in ways that are not consistent with with the way, you know, things really are. How do you kind of write that? Like, how do you um, how do you set that? Cor- how do you how do you correct things in public? Is that even possible? It's somewhat. And you, you have to have some level. Of, you want to have urgency, but also a bit of patience. And I think when mm. you're referring to the fact that I think within one week we got described as conservative by one by one uh, news organization and progressive by another. And, and that's OK. That kind of comes with the territory as people start to understand what the AND campaign is about, because we don't serve either uh, ideology. Um, and so we there may be some stances that we take when it comes to abortion, and religious liberty that may be considered conservative. So be it if that's what you want to call it. And then when you talk about poverty and, and other issues and, and race issues, some people may, might say we're progressive. We're not really worried about the titles. Uh, we want to get as many opportunities as we can to get our voice out there. And we think the more that people hear us, the more that they see, hey, what they're doing is breaking out of these categories and not necessarily uh, allowing people to put them in these categories. But we understood, you know, early in the game that people are going to get that wrong sometimes. And we just have to have a little grace, but at the same time, be articulate in how we explain it. All right, Justin, you and I, um, we're not actually going to take a break. So if anybody is waiting for a break, there's not going to be one. Um, uh, We're just going to move through. We actually already aired the break. If you missed it, sorry. Um, Let's, uh, can we talk um, for a moment about Kirk Franklin, um, and I may mispronounce her name. I think it's Letitia Wright. Um, these are uh, these are both African Americans. They're they're both black, and they are both performers. They are um, people who, uh, I mean, are really really talented and have been celebrated for their talent. Um, they are also Christians, and sometimes the things that they say publicly are edited out of um, of what is aired. Can you just talk about what's going on from your perspective? Yeah, so from my perspective, as I understand it, Kurt Franklin made, you know, some comments about social justice and some comments about, uh, you know, America and things that we can do better and how we treat people, and that that was cut out of his acceptance speech, I think, is, is how it went. Uh, and I think that I think that's un- unfortunate. Um, I think Christians in general, because th- this is why I think that happens. It happens because part of the audience doesn't want to hear about that stuff. And I think Christians, whether you ag- agree with it completely or not, have to be open to hearing different perspectives on, about what's going on in society. If your brother is crying out to you saying this needs to change, you need to be able to listen. And I think when we don't want to listen and we want to turn people away, it shows that we're not entering into things with humility and really with the type of compassion that we need to have. And so I think what pushes this ha- to happen is that there's a critical mass of people, of Christians, who just don't want to hear it. Uh, and I'm not saying that you have to agree with everything that is said, 
but you should be able to hear it uh, without turning on your brother or not supporting a, a television station because uh, someone who has been serving uh, serving the body for a long time has an opinion that they feel that you need to hear. Uh, we should be able to do that without being so defensive, and we've talked about that uh, defense, that self-defensive reflex uh, that we tend to have when we feel like we're being called out. And we need to be more, I think we need to have more humility than that uh, to hear others out and not, you know, and not uh, have Christian organizations in fear that if they give something voice, then they're automatically going to be canceled because we shouldn't be part of that cancel culture anyway. So that's interesting language for people who aren't familiar with the language of cancel culture. Can you introduce them to that subject? Because sometimes we um, are exposed to language that maybe all of our listeners are not familiar with. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to explain it. So, you know, the interesting thing is that cancel culture kind of comes from the left. And it's the idea that if you do something wrong or you're not in line with the with certain uh, a certain tribes principles, then you should lose your job. Uh, you should be taking off, you know, you should lose your platform and really just canceling you so that you no longer have a platform or a voice. Now, that comes from the left a lot. But I'm realizing that in Christian circles, when you talk yeah. about justice issues, that the right also uh, participates in cancel culture. And I think what's happening to uh, Kurt Franklin is just that it's kind of the cancel culture of saying we don't want to hear what you have to say. And so we're just going to cut it off as if it never happened. Well, and maybe this is the way it happens on the left. I'm only really, you know, much more familiar when it happens on the right. Um, it's just that you just don't get invited to stuff anymore. Yep. Yeah. That's part of it. <laughs> so, that is part of it. I have been, um, I have been uninvited to many things, but that's okay. Um, I, I um, uh, Justin, I feel like there is a desire for healthier conversation. There's certainly a desire for civility. Um and the number of people engaged in that conversation um, is really diverse. And that is a little bit scary to people who have maintained their influence by controlling who is at the table and gets to speak. And so I just, um, you know, let me just encourage you to continue doing what you're doing. I'm going to continue what I'm doing. And others who are doing it, we're going to just all continue tilling the soil together and planting the seeds and uh, and trusting God to give the growth. There it is. I, I think that I think mm-hmm. that's exactly it, Carmen. Um, I love talking with you. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to send people to andcampaign.org to check out the 2020 presidential election statement. Check out the Faith in Politics rally happening. Uh, it's happening in Chicago, but it's also happening online um, on Thursday, November the 14th. Um, and give us your feedback. Justin and I would both like to connect with you on social media and get your feedback. So thanks so much, my brother. We will uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, Carmen. Take care. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Absolutely. Okay, so my next conversation is with Gina Thomas. And Gina Thomas... Um, I'm just going to describe her as a foster care mom. And if I describe her as a foster care mom and a Christian, you, you're going to want to hear her story. Um, the challenge that we then face is I'm going to then tell you that she fostered a child who was separated at the U.S. southern border from, um, uh, from the adult who was with her at the time, who was her stepdad. And that this is a story of a birth mom from Honduras uh, named Lupe. And a little girl named Julia. And then this foster mom 
Gina Thomas and this child's 3,000 mile journey. And when I, when I describe all of that, I know that you're feeling angst. I know it. I feel angst. It's an angsty topic. And that's why we're talking about it. The book is Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. Gina Thomas is up with me next. So sometimes uh, you might miss a show or uh, sometimes you might hear something on the show and you think to yourself, wow, I really want to share that with somebody else. Um, So maybe you want to share the conversation we just had with Justin Gibney, or you want to go back and you want to share the conversation we had this morning with Jennifer Lyle um, about uh, the promises of God storybook Bible. You want to give that to somebody in your children's ministry at your church. So later today, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com, go to the Mornings with Carmen page, and you can get the podcast. Trust me, those of you who are concerned about immigration and uh, what is happening at the U.S. southern border, you're going to definitely want the podcast of my next conversation with Gina Thomas. She and I are going to talk about her new book, Separated by the Border. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Every day, hundreds of orphan children find safety and love from parents who choose to adopt them. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I believe that adopting a child is one of the most sacrificial things anyone can do. So in honor of National Adoption Month, I want to read from Romans chapter 8. Paul said that Christians have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. When you adopt a child, you model God's sacrificial love for his children. Today, I want to applaud and thank those who have taken on the God-honoring role of adoptive parent. You are among today's most brave and selfless heroes. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Gina Thomas. You can find her at GinaThomas.com on Twitter. For those of you who like the tweets, Gina L. Thomas is where you can find her on Twitter. Her book, Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and A Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. Gina, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me, Carmen. So this is your story, but this is also Julia's story and Lupe's story and a story of the very desperate desire that any adult responsible for a, ch- for a child um, has for an abundant life. Um, and yet a real hardness among us related to this topic. So before we um, dive into the story itself, talk about the reactions that you've received to the sharing of this story? Because I imagine that it's been all over the place. Yeah, it has. Um, I would say that some people are um, frustrated that uh, I even, you know, that we even worked toward reunification um, because of, you know, allowing her to, to this little girl to go back to um, a life of difficulty, economically speaking. Um, some have been um, sad that I'm sharing the story because it's not actually my story to share. 
Um, and then others have, you know, really appreciated the story. So it, it really is a, a whole range of, of things coming. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate it. And I think that um, one of the things that if people will go to GinaThomas.com, you know, one of the things that you can watch there is just a, a few minutes of Gina talking about this. And I actually, I find that a really helpful entry point into conversation. So people uh, who are going to read and maybe use Separated by the Border um, as a conversation conversational book, which is the way I would definitely encourage people to use it. Um, it's a wonderful just individual read, but it's it's such provocative content that I feel like having conversations around it, either in a book club or maybe um, with a group from your church, would be really, really helpful. And I think that the video is just a really, um, it's almost, um, it almost takes the questions off the table because you so humanize the whole thing. Uh, in in that very brief video. So let me just encourage people to check that out. So let's start in Honduras in 2017. Um, You know, we're talking about a woman, Lupe, and her child, Julia. What provokes Mm -hmm. a mother to even imagine that she wants to make this journey with her young child um, from Honduras to try to immigrate to the United States of America? So let's start in Honduras in 2017. What's reality like? Yeah, so um, this is a mother who is in charge of um, of four children and two grandparents. So the mother's grandparents um, are living in the home with her, and she is the sole breadwinner. So in order to make enough money to feed everyone and take care of everyone, um, you know, it's a really challenging thing to do. Uh, in addition, her grandfather gets sick and really needs some medicine. And so all of her money that she had saved up from previous times working um, goes into um, trying to help him, you know, uh, get this medicine that he needs. And then there comes a point in time where there's nothing left and there's no, there's no knowledge of where it can come from um, or anything like that. And so um, uh, Lupe decides after talking to different family members and friends that the best option would be to go to the United States for a couple of months, get a job that she can then send money back home so that this medicine can be purchased for her grandfather. Um, so that's really the reason um, that she even made the trip. She wasn't fleeing violence. She wasn't trying to leave. Um, she loves her hometown. And her daughter is the youngest of all the kids and the only girl. And it makes sense for her to take her daughter with her um, because the the other kids can kind of take care of themselves and the grandparents can take care of them. Um, But, you know, the five-year-old is a little bit younger and and needs more. So that was how that even started. And kids should be with their parents. Like there's some simple simple stuff here that as Christians, we're like, okay, I'm I'm pro-life. And so I want to be pro-life for Lupe. And I want to celebrate that Lupe has children and that Lupe is committed not just to her children, but she's committed to the generation that is ahead that, you know, has come before her. She's committed to the care and the welfare of her aging grandparents. Um, Like I'm, I want to be pro-life for Lupe, but Lupe happens to live in a place where life is really difficult and where um, earning enough money to sustain the lives of all of these people is difficult and certainly not a life where they would flourish and thrive. So mm-hmm. they um, begin to make their way through Mexico. What happens as they um, as they arrive in northern Mexico and with whom are they traveling? So they had paid. So the mother um, it travels with a friend of hers. 
they're not in a relationship together, but this friend has decided to take on the role as stepdad. And so he actually has his name put on the little girl Julia's um, birth certificate. So he officially is her stepdad, according to Honduran um, law. So the three of them are traveling together up um, from from Honduras, and they pay $7,500 to smugglers to take them on that journey to the border. Um, on route, um, there were a lot of things that happened, but for the most part, they, they are traveling in the back of a tractor trailer um, cargo load with several other, um, about 200 other uh, travelers as well. And when they arrive at the border in northern Mexico, the smugglers decide to keep the mother as an economic hostage. So they decide to use her to prostitute her um, in order to make more money. And they let the stepdad and the little girl Julia, they let them cross the river and and go into the United States, but they keep the mom behind. So Julia has now, remind us how old she is. She's five. Okay. So let's just get our hearts and minds around this for just a moment. We have a five-year-old who's now been, um, she's separated from her, her, the place that she knows, but the reason that she's not in the place that she knows is in order that her mom can um, make provision for their family by going to a place where there's more economic opportunity. Um, that would be the United States of America. But along the way, she is separated from her mom by by people who are now going to traffic her mom for economic mm-hmm. gain. Um, and so she is in the care of um, her official legal guardian at this point, her stepdad, and they mm-hmm. illegally cross the border into the United States of America. What happens when they are apprehended? When they're apprehended, they um, Border Patrol, we don't really know why exactly, but Border Patrol separated them. So the legal document that they had, her birth certificate, did not keep them together. And it's likely that that happened because of zero tolerance um, policy that was actually happening prior to it was announced publicly. Um, But it also could just be um, for other reasons. So sometimes Border Patrol might separate, you know, two members because they don't look like they're together or they're worried that this person is trafficking the child. Um, In that case, it makes it really confusing that once they are separated, she is then placed with her stepdad's sister's home. So she's placed into her stepdad's sister's home um, after they're separated. And so I don't really, I'm, I'm not sure that the the idea that he was trafficking her was it actually holds up too much because of that fact. Um, but she is then entered um, officially as an unaccompanied minor and then is um, goes through the Office of Refugee Resettlement to be resettled with the least restrictive, um, someone who is connected to the family somehow or another. And that's how she ends up in the home of her stepdad's sister in North Carolina. Okay, so let's pause right there. Um, Gina Thomas and I are going to continue this conversation. The book is Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. We are just on the verge of learning um, how Gina enters into this story. And so that's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Be 
I'm talking with Gina Thomas. We're talking about uh, her new book, Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. Um, you can find Gina and the book online at GinaThomas.com. You can also find her other books there as well. Um, Gina, we're now basically halfway through the book. I'm picking up at Chapter 6, Gina and Family. Um, you um, you spent time in Mexico. And so mm-hmm. this, um, because I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to think, wow, if I thought about being a foster parent, I can't imagine, um, you know, having a child placed in my care who only speaks Spanish. Um, so talk about, so first of all, talk about fostering children who are not biologically your own, and then talk about the experience of um, inviting this one particular child who was separated at the border into your home as a foster child. Yeah, so for people who are interested in fostering, it's certainly um, a, a challenge. Um, it's a journey, and um, I think it's very important for for those who are interested to really do a lot of research and and try to understand, talk to people who have fostered before. Um, really the, the whole point of foster care is to reunite children with their biological parents. And it's basically a time to give their parents time to, um, take parenting classes, to go through, um, different therapies, um, and all this kind of stuff to, to create safe and, um, appropriate environments for the children to return to. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't always happen, but the ultimate goal is reunification and going back to what you initially said about being pro-life and pro-family, I really do believe that that is a picture of the gospel. Um, it really is challenging for each of us to, to for those of us who have entered foster care, I think everyone has gone through a phase where they're like, I don't want to give the children back. Um, but for me, one of the things that I really had to come to grips with in understanding that for both my husband and I was that ultimately if we are going to say that we're pro-life and pro-family, then we really do need to believe that redemption is possible, not just for children, but also for their parents. And I think a lot of times it's easy for us to just focus on the child and not focus on the whole family. Um, So I do hope people will get involved in foster care. There's a constant need for foster parents. Um, And if anyone has questions about that, they can find me, yeah, on Twitter or my website, and I'd be happy to talk to them about those things. Um, As far as fostering someone who um, only speaks Spanish, so our social workers knew that we both spoke Spanish. My husband and I both do. Um, We lived in Mexico as missionaries for four and a half years, and uh, our son was actually born there. And so we, we've had a, a family history of being in Latin uh, American cultures. Uh, I also had lived in Honduras previously. And so knowing that and having that background, um, when social workers did get, you know, the call for this little girl who only spoke Spanish, they immediately called us um, and, and we we thought that it was just going to be a weekend thing. Um, so we thought that federal custody was going to come um, get her uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Office of Refugee Resettlement uh, the following Monday at court, but that didn't happen. Um, so it turned into a situation where we really had to figure out what we were going to do. But we did feel um, specifically equipped as a family to to handle the situation um, specifically because we had our experience in Mexico and we all spoke Spanish and um, could understand her completely. And um, by the time that she left our home, she was actually speaking English incredibly well. 
Um, and, and I want to give a shout out to her, her teachers for that. That really wasn't us. That was her amazing teachers at her school. But um, yeah, it was certainly a challenge and it's a very different thing because, you know, foster care is in a lot of ways um, almost like a culture shock for kids coming into new homes because it's a new environment. It's, um, it's a microcosm of a culture and, and it's challenging for, for children to, to follow new rules and to eat new foods and, um, to understand that they are loved by people who they don't know. So that in itself is its own challenge. And then on top of that, to have very different cultures, um, mixed in. And so there are things that we eat and things that we do, um, that might not seem as abnormal to someone who is from the United States, but to someone who's from Honduras, it's very different. So there was a lot of a lot of stuff happening in our home at that time and and challenging in the process. But um, yeah, the way that the Lord just really um, provided and, and gave us this experience previously really set us up to be able to to handle the situation. So, Gina, um, we're not going to give away everything that is in the book. And in fact, um, let me just say that chapter 10 of the book, which is the reflections section, um, if you're listening right now, chapter 10 of the book is worth the price of the book. The story is fantastic and engaging and absolutely wonderful and puts a very real human face um, and, and one child story on something that is happening to thousands of children right now. Um, and so it's it's tremendously uh, helpful for that. But chapter 10 um, in the reflections section is um, is really it's really a gift. Um, some of the things that you aggregate here in terms of resources and ideas and encouragement and your own reflections on things and a book list and um, is is really, uh, really, really wonderful. And so I just want to highlight that for people. Um, we have about a minute left, Gina. Um, let me let me ask you to do this. Make the transition from this one story to the fact that there are thousands of these stories right now. Yeah. Yeah, there are 5,460 children at this point in time that we know of that have been separated um, from July 2017 until today and potentially more, you know, as the days continue. Um, it's important for us to recognize that the, even though this is Julia's story, this is also the story of many children. Um, and I don't want to take away her uniqueness in her own story, but also don't want to um, people to think that this is just an anomaly. Um, this family separation is causing all kinds of trauma, um, not only to the children, but also to the parents, to the family unit as a whole. And, and I really think it's important for us as Christians to get involved in this and, again, to, to really act on that stance that we are pro-life and we are pro-family. Um, I appreciate that you um, help us imagine something that, frankly, we don't even want to think about. So thank you so much um, for your testimony, for your life, for your ministry and witness for this book. Um, and for uh, leading us into a very important conversation today. The book is Separated by the Border. Go to GinaThomas.com and learn more. Gina, thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. All right, friends, uh, another another day. Um, you and I have an opportunity today to be uh, be light be winsome witnesses, be joy in a world that is often joyless, 
And so let me just ask the question that I asked earlier. What are you reading today or who are you reading today? And as other people read you, because they are, by the way, as other people read you, what are they getting? Are they getting good news? Are they getting gospel? Let's uh, let's allow our lives to be gospel as other people read us today and then be ready to answer the question. Why are you here? Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.